0: Bible church, we don't want to just say, okay, we're going to be another church on the bandwagon. Let's start what? Small groups. Let's just start them and everybody else is doing them. You know, it's it's kind of the thing nowadays to have small groups, community groups, care groups, whatever you want to call them. We don't want to just do that. We want to lay down a foundation and give a vision and a biblical understanding, which is probably the most important thing, why we want to do what we're about to do, and sometimes we may be in a small group. Even now, we have a small group on Wednesday night, smaller than I'd like sometimes, but it's a small group. a Small group on Thursday morning. Small group on Tuesday nights. The men get together. in Small groups once in a month for breakfast, things like that. We have small groups going on, but not with any clear direction, without any clear purpose. Um, you know, since the nineteen seventies, mid seventies, probably, if I remember reading about this, um, this was before I was a believer, obviously. But the church in America was fascinated with small groups. And if you were a Christian during that time period, you probably remember being in a church and the big thing was, oh, we're going to start small groups, we're going to start community groups, and whatever they're going to call them. All right? And it was this, um, a majority of churches have at least experimented with the idea of small groups. People getting together during the week in a small environment, small atmosphere to get to know each other. But from what I've seen... A lot of churches never really hammer out a clear purpose or a clear goal biblically when they begin their small groups. It's like it's just another program. It's just something else that we're supposed to go to. We don't want to do that. We want to do things with purpose and with understanding. And most important, we want to do things that are clearly based on God's Word. And so we want to look at this morning just kind of a little bit about these Community groups, these care groups, but we don't want to. We're not doing this just because we got together as elders and said, "Hey, you know what? Another trend in the in the church marketing thing is you got to have small groups." That's not why we're about to start small groups. That's not our purpose, Um, because it won't be effective. I guarantee you, a small group ministry will not be effective at all unless it exists to achieve a clear biblical purpose. There has to be a purpose based on the Bible why we do what we do. And a lot of churches have that lack of purpose biblically and that mandate. And so they're small groups. They're there, but they're kind of floundering. They're all over the place. And, uh, you know, it's just a a frustrating thing. And it really becomes another burden to the church. And so we want to kind of lay down this morning a foundation for the coming months. Um, And the other thing is, you know, when you look at small group material, you know, for the past couple weeks I've been looking at pretty much everything I can get my hands on concerning small groups. And there's, there's something missing in almost all the material I've looked at. And that's a biblical basis and sound doctrine. Good biblical theology. You have all these books out there on these touchy-feely psychological, sociological trends in the church. But it's hard to find something that is biblical, that it's theological, and it it contains some meat, it contains some doctrine. And a lot of them, they have neat illustrations, they have provoking questions, and all that stuff. And I'm sure that the publishers want, you know, they want it out there to succeed, but they lack the biblical content because they're trying to market these things to a vast audience. So if they're going to get biblical at all, they're going to offend somebody. (laughs) So they, rather than you know, introduce any theology, almost they just pull back and they they have very little. You know, one thing we read this morning in Matthew seven was about the two foundations, and we want to make sure that we start our foundation on the foundation of God's word. Amen. That's what this church is all about. It's about God's word. It's not about programs. It's not about another marketing thing. It's not about well, this will help our church grow bigger. That, it's not about that. It's about. Uh, what we're going to talk about here, the reason we're doing this is because we feel biblically it's the thing to do. And I think that that personally, every small group, every church should have some form of small group ministry. You know, we want to talk about this morning about building community in our midst. Some biblical foundations for our grace care groups that we're about to start. And, you know... We would desire, I mean, it's, it's our heart's desire that we would have 100% involvement in these things. That's how strongly we feel about it. But we know that's not, that's not reality. <laughs> it's just not. Um, and that's why we're kind of starting this with a kind of a, a blank palette. You know, it, it, it's not, okay, they're going to be on Wednesdays and Sunday nights. Sign up. But you know what? Maybe Wednesdays and Sunday nights don't work for you. But maybe Tuesdays or maybe Thursdays or maybe Saturday mornings or Saturday nights or whatever. So we want to come to you as the body and say prayerfully, consider when would be a good time? When can I fit this into my schedule? And when could I give a couple hours a week to this ministry? And there's a lot of concern about small groups. There's a lot of churches that have been split as a result of small groups. People getting together and gossiping and going off on theological tangents here and there. So when we do this, we want to do it right. We want to do it because God is leading us to do it. We don't want to do it just to something to do. We all have things to do. We don't need another thing just to do. But we really believe that these should be a priority for every Christian in our church. Basically, grace care groups are a priority because... Scripture underscores the centrality of relationships. When you look throughout Scripture, wherever you look, it's always talking about relationships. You don't see isolated people in Scripture. They're always built around relationships. They're built about people coming together. We want these groups to be A place where you can develop not just, you know, acquaintances, but we want you to have intimate fellowship and and relationships with one another in these groups. And some people, like myself, may say, I don't feel comfortable with that. Because to be honest with you, I don't feel comfortable with that. I mean, you, 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 you mentioned the word intimate. You know, I run out the back door. You know, relationships are hard for me. They just are. Ask my wife. I'm married to her. I mean, she knows. How difficult it is to be married to someone who where relationships are not a priority, and it's it's important that for my own accountability that I be part of a small group. You know, I'm not standing up here as a pastor saying, "Okay, you guys need to be in small groups," but I'll be home, you know, Wednesday night <laughs> watching TV or something. No, I'm going to be part of a small group or maybe a couple. I don't know, and it, it just depends on on how God leads through this. But we all need to embrace this. Thirdly, grace care groups must be founded on sound doctrine and biblical purpose. I'm kind of, We're going to go into this a little bit later. But we want a strong foundation for these. And we're not just going to offer these. We're not just going to have these as a church. We really believe that when you look in the New Testament, the church came together for a corporate meeting. But they also came together, it says, house to house. It says, daily, daily. They had fellowship with one another. They broke bread. They came together. They they studied God's... They looked at God's Word. They prayed together. You know, that's what they did. And God used them in an incredible way. Look at this quote by J.I. Packer. He says, We should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health. It's vital and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong only when there is what? Fellowship. Fellowship. So... We're not here to to have necessary... I mean, we enjoy fellowship on Sunday mornings. Don't get me wrong. But this is an ideal environment for fellowship, to build intimate acquaintances. And we're a small church. You have 50, 60 people here. You're not going to get intimately acquainted with everybody. It's not going to happen. Genuine fellowship really isn't practical in a crowd of 200 or 2,000 or even 50. And so that's why we want to pursue us getting together in other venues. Develop a more intimate relationship so that we can be known and be known in our group. So we don't want to just have them or offer them, but we want to really, we believe that the church will be built around these. See, right now I feel in a way our church is built around Sunday morning. Come to church once a week. You come to Sunday morning. You feel you've done your thing, and it's off for another week in the world. And if it was a good message and good music, then you you know you walk into Monday morning kind of pumped up. And maybe if you're real spiritual, by Wednesday you need a shot in the arm, so you come out to prayer meeting Wednesday night Bible study, and you know make it through the rest of the week. Well, that's not the way it was in the New Testament. These people needed each other. They needed each other incredibly. Because there was so much going on. And and we're no different today. Our lives are filled. They're jam-packed with stuff. We all have schedules that are in the red and it just looks like we can't go through another day. But we need to stop and we need to say, you know what? Let's do what's right. Let's make the priority God's people. Let's make the priority growing in Christ. Why do we want to do this? As far as small groups are concerned. Why grace groups? There's four clear goals from Scripture. First of all, we're going to go through these in the coming weeks. Today we're just going to look at the first one. Progressive sanctification. We're going to be looking at that. In other words, becoming more like Christ happens in our community groups, and our care groups. Mutual care. Like John was saying, that's that's the time where we can come together as the body of Christ because there's maybe eight or twelve people in a room and we can talk about things that maybe we wouldn't talk about here Sunday morning. Also, fellowship. Fellowship really happens in a smaller group of people and also the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we allow a venue so that, and I'm not talking about some weird thing, but I'm talking about God using your gifts and your abilities as the Holy Spirit has gifted you in a small group to minister to those around you. We want to look at the first one today, progressive sanctification. And this is kind of important because Really, Christian lives have either succeeded as a proper understanding of this or they've tanked. And there's so many Christians today that don't understand the doctrine of sanctification. They just don't get it. Wayne Grudem is a really neat theologian, a lot smarter than I am, and here's what he says um, sanctification is. He gives us a definition of sanctification. I think it's written there in your chart. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. That's what sanctification is all about. We think about sanctification as setting apart. Well, that's true. But it's also this progressive work. That's the goal of the Christian life, isn't it? Isn't that what we're all about? We're we're to becoming more like Christ each and every day. Increasing freedom from sin and increasing resemblance to Jesus? Hopefully you look more like Jesus than you did when you're the date you were saved. Hopefully, God shaved some of those corners off and, and rounded out your character and, and made you more Christ like. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's the goal. And you know what? Care groups provide an opportunity for that to occur. It really does. Now some groups, small groups, they'll they'll put more of an emphasis on the socialization than sanctification. In other words, you just get together with your group once a week and you do the small talk just like you would here on Sunday morning and then you go home and nothing's changed. We don't want that to be the case. We want our groups to be really a venue where sanctification can happen on a weekly basis. So that a year from now you can look back at your brothers and sisters in your group and you can look at each other and say, man, haven't we changed? Haven't we grown more like Christ? Isn't this exciting? We're on a journey together. But not every group in all these churches are intent on purpose. Like I said, some put higher priority just on social stuff. Sometimes you think small group, you think, okay, food, snacks, maybe a song and like a quick little devotion or something. Okay. Others, they'll excel in in this open sharing thing that's going around. You know, you just get together in a big circle and everybody shares their problems and, you know, everybody's sympathetically listening to everybody. And yet nobody ever confronts anyone's sin. No one ever challenges anybody. It's just a feel good session. How are Christians to relate to one another? How are we told in God's Word that we should clearly relate to one another? It's very clear that, that God's Word tells us that when we relate to one another, it should be in love. Okay, It should be open, honest discussion. It shouldn't be something that we're hiding behind a mask. And those groups will allow that to happen. You know, a group with an uh, unbiblical purpose and an, an unbiblical vision can really do more harm than good for us. They really can't. Groups that meet without any kind of biblical purpose of pursuing character development a lot of times those groups really, excuse me, reinforce they reinforce the sin that that everybody's carrying rather than confront it. And we don't need that kind of reinforcement. I don't need that kind of reinforcement. I don't know about you, but I don't. I need somebody to look me in the eye and say, you know, brother, you're you're off in this area. You know, you need to change in this area. We need to be provoked. We need to be challenged by others so that that we can change for the glory of God. It's not for our own glory, beloved. It's for the glory of God. Now, before we go any further, I know there's a, a lot of different people from different backgrounds here, but it's important that we understand the difference in some theological issues here this morning. That's what sanctification is. It's a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Jesus. A lot of people get these two confused. And this is kind of the the Bible study part of the morning here. It's important that we understand the difference between sanctification and justification here's how dr. Gruden defines justification justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he first of all thinks of our sins as forgiven past tense they're they're out of the way and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and secondly he declares us to be righteous in his sight a neat definition. If you're a believer here this morning, that's what you possess. God has justified you before Him. The moment you were born again, God has justified you. He has instantaneously declared God did. Not some judge down here in the courthouse. I don't know if you watched any of this craziness this last week with Anna Nicole and her body and all this. Not this judge was just nutty. You now I watched parts of it. I thought, "Where is this guy coming off?" And I know he wants his own TV show or whatever, so he's probably playing to the cameras. And I mean, it was just nutty. We're not dealing with that kind of a of a declaration here. We're talking about a declaration that God has made on our behalf—that He declared us just. And when He looks at us, He thinks of our sins as being forgiven. He doesn't see him; He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's a blessing. And on the basis of Christ's finished work, God thinks of your sins as forgiven and He declares that you are personally righteous before Him. See, justification talks about our position before God. It's our position before God. We're declared righteous in God's eyes. On the other hand, sanctification talks about our practice every day. How do we live out our Christian life? And here's where a lot of Christians get confused. They try to earn what has already been given to them. (laughs) As a free gift. They try to earn it. Look at what Martin Luther said here about justification. He says, The only contribution we make to our justification is our sin, (laughs) which God so graciously forgives. I like that. The only contribution we make to our justification is our sin. That's it. We bring our sin to God and say, "Please help. I need Christ. I need the cross." I'm trying to do on this church thing for a while, and you know, I'm trying to do this and do that. And there's this list of do's and don'ts and all that. And I'm trying to live this. It's not about that. It's not about doing do's and don'ts. It's about coming to Christ, open and honest before Him, and say, "Man, you know what? Have mercy on me, a sinner." In the moment God hears that prayer, sincere prayer from your heart, He declares you righteous because you've humbled yourself before Him. And then the process of sanctification begins from that point on. Look at some of the differences here. And they're in your outline there. Justification, as I talked about, talks about our position before God. Sanctification is our practice justification we're being declared righteous it's a it's a one-time deal it's not something that happens over time God looks at us we come to to him in faith through Christ and he says I declare you righteous sanctification we're becoming more righteous daily as we live out our lives justification is an immediate act as I said before justification or sanctification is a gradual process Justification is something that's being completed. Sanctification is something that's still going on. The neat thing about this is justification. You know, we all have the same amount of justification. We're all declared righteous if we're in Christ. We've all been justified in Christ. But you know what? As we look around the room, there's varying degrees of sanctification. (laughs) Some of you may have been Christians for years. Some of you may have been Christians for weeks. Not that that has any... I've known a lot of Christians that have been Christians for years <laughs> and they, their, their, their uh, varying degrees of sanctification have weighed a lot. Uh, they, they haven't really uh, been sanctified that much. They haven't allowed God to work in their life. But we all have the same... We possess the same amount of justification before God. We've been declared Righteous. You know what? You'll never be more justified than you are right now sitting here if you're a Christian. Tomorrow God's not going to look at you and say, oh, I love you more today than I did yesterday. It's not going to happen. Because justification is an act of God. It's something that He already has taken care of. By God's grace, you know what? Daily we'll become more sanctified as we cooperate with God's Spirit in the process of change, as He, as he kind of leads us along this path of Christian growth, hopefully we'll grow more like Christ. But we'll never be more justified than we are right now before God because justification is a legal act and it's already taken care of. It's done if your faith is in Christ Jesus. And it seems like they're two separate doctrines, but you know what? You cannot separate the two. You just can't do it. You can't separate either one of those. See, it's important to understand that God does not justify someone without sanctifying Him as as well. What do I mean by that? When you're saved, when you bow the knee to Christ and you come to Christ in faith, He justifies you. That's an instantaneous act. It's a judgment that God passes down from His high court in heaven. And He says, I declare you righteous in My sight. And now I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And He's going to show you things that you do need to change. Attitudes that you shouldn't have. Words you shouldn't use. Things that are dishonoring to me. Those things are going to be stripped away from your life. That's the process of sanctification. And you know what? It's not optional. See, we want to make it optional. We want to come to Christ and be justified. And then we want our lives to be the same as they were before. That's a false gospel. Anybody, whoever has come in contact with Jesus, something happened. Either they walked away sad because they didn't change, they didn't embrace Christ, or or they were incredibly changed. They were transformed. God does not justify someone without carrying on that sanctifying process in in Him as well. It's not optional. If one has truly been justified, saved then you're going to see evidence of that progressive work of sanctification in your life. You're going to see God working in ways. Look at this next quote. This is by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. He says, The glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to Him in spite of their sin. But our greatest temptation, look at this, and mistake is to try to smuggle character into his work of grace. Then he continues, How easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we only remain justified as long as there are grounds in our character for that justification. But Paul's teaching is that nothing we do ever contributes to our justification. See, when you come together in a care group, Hebrews tells us that we're called to spurn one another. To kind of rub up against each other and build each other up. Well, that's what happens when the church comes together in a smaller environment. They contribute to this gradual work of God's grace in our lives. It's progressive sanctification that happens over time. There's a couple different ways that this can happen. What are the means of sanctification? How does God use this? First of all, He uses relationships. He uses relationships. No man is an island unto himself. You can't just live your life all by yourself. If you're married, you have to have consideration for your spouse. You know, if you don't, it's not going to be a happy marriage. See, it's important to understand that we need relationships. We also need God's Word. You can't do one or the other without these. You can't just say, well, I'm all about relationships, but I don't want to study the Bible. Or I'm all about studying the Bible, and I'm just going to do it at home on Sunday morning as I sit here with my family. We're going to have church at home. We don't believe in church. I've met people like that. That's not biblical. The Bible says that we shouldn't forsake the assembling of ourselves as coming together and studying God's Word and praying and partaking of the Lord's Supper. So those are the two means. Let's look at the first one. Don't try this alone. This theologian says this the Christian life is inescapably corporate. Look at what he says. Teaching on Christian holiness has frequently concentrated almost exclusively, and you can attest to this. How many times have you heard this? On being a whole the holy man or the holy woman, singular, to neglect To the neglect of biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. See, that's what we're called to do. I think that it's important for us to come together. We don't want to try this alone. We don't want to try to to, to progressively work out our sanctification by ourselves. It's not going to work. We need accountability, we need people to come together. And that's what this will allow. It's interesting that as you look, this uh, uh, theologian goes on, and he also talks about how whenever all the major ex- exhortations to holy living, you look in Romans 6, you look in Galatians 5, you look in Ephesians 4, whenever the church is told to live in a holy manner, it's never you and me, it's always you as in plural, we. It's always plural. The bulk of the New Testament teaching on on Christian living is always corporate. It's always to churches. Look at all the letters they wrote. They're generally usually written to churches. And we need to kind of get out of this idea that we're the the omnicompetent, as he calls it, Christian individual. And we're able to meet every spiritual challenge and live a life of unbroken victory over the sin and devil without anybody's help. We need to come together. And the apostles really envisioned the Christian life and the Christian sanctification in the context of a caring, loving fellowship group. That's when it happened. I mean, you stop and you think about it. Probably a vast majority of us can honestly say that most of our sanctifying process, the, the times when God has really worked in our lives, has probably been in a group of people. I know that for a year here, couple years in a row we had a thing called Joshua's men and the men would come together once a month for about four or five hour period and we'd eat dinner together and we'd read books and fellowship and, and learn there were incredible times of fellowship I don't know about you guys but I miss those things we need more of that and we know the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable and he's obviously responsible for convicting you personally you know he does that that's that's obvious But He also uses others. And we want to make sure that that we embrace that. One commentator writes this. He says, It's been sobering to observe others who have chosen not to participate in a local church or in small groups. He says they have demonstrated a distinct lack of growth. And he goes, What's worth Worse is, they haven't even been aware of their spiritual condition and stagnation. See, when you're an island all by yourself, you don't have anybody kind of spurning you on. You don't have anybody saying, hey, let's, let's get together. Let's talk about God. Let's see what God's doing in your life. When you're all by yourself, you know what? You become stagnant spiritually. And the sad thing is, you don't even realize it. I know because I've been there. I've been in that place where, you know, you just kind of cut yourself off from everybody. And you're by yourself, and your your spiritual life just goes into the dumps. And you keep on telling yourself, you've got to pull yourself out of this, you've got to pull yourself out of this. It doesn't work. Small groups, these care groups, will provide a, a, a place of encouragement, of correction, of accountability, so that we stay on the right track, so that we're not off drifting down our own road. It's important that we cultivate a personal relationship with God by obviously practicing spiritual disciplines in our own life, but we also need the help of others in that pursuit of sanctification. If you have a per- passion for personal change in your life, for and every Christian should, who would want to come to Christ and say, I just want to stay the same way. I hope God doesn't change me. You know, I don't want God to change me at all. I just want to be myself. You know, we've all used that excuse. That's not me. It's not my way. Sorry. You know, I, I always tell my wife. You know, I'm just not real romantic that way. I'm not real expressive that way. That's just who I am. And a counselor said, "Well, you better start changing who you are through the power of Christ, because that's not good." <laughs> and that's what is the truth. And it shouldn't be something seen as abnormal. We look at that and we go, wow, I don't know about that. That, that should just be normal in our Christian lives. R.C. Sproul says this. He said, it's both foolish and wicked to suppose that we can make such much progress in sanctification if we isolate ourselves from the visible church. Indeed, if we, it is commonplace to hear people declare that they don't need to be united with a church to be a Christian. They claim that their devotion is personal and private, not institutional or corporate. This is not the testimony of the great saints of history. And he goes on and he says, it is a confession of fools. I pray you're not sitting here this morning saying, I don't need this stuff. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Remember in Genesis 4 and 9, Cain questioned God. He was questioned by God about the murder of Abel. And what was he doing? And the whole time he's back, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm not my brother's keeper. But you know what? He was and so are we. We have a responsibility to help our brothers and sisters keep the will of God. That's what church is all about. It's not just come here Sunday morning, sit down, hear some songs and message and go home. That's not what church is about. There's some accountability that has to take place. And that's the way that God helps us through relationships to achieve the sanctification that God wants us to have. Charles Swindoll said this, accountability includes opening one's life to a very carefully few selected trusted individual confidence who speak the truth, who have the right to examine, to question, to approve and to give counsel. Dr. Cousins called it this. Allowing someone to, per, to ask penetrating, sometimes uncomfortable questions in order to challenge you to, go, to grow. You know, I want to look this morning just quickly. It's all about relationships. But I want to look at the tale of two lives here. First of all, we see David. Turn over to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. We know the story of David. Hopefully. We're not going to go into detail on this. But I want us to look at this because it's so vital to understanding accountability. 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can just follow along as I read this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time... When the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant, with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her and she was um, cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, conceived so she sent and, and told David and said, I'm with child. Then David sent Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing. And how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house. And the gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my Lord Joab and servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and be with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him. And he made him uh, drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were more valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. See what this guy did. Sent him out in the battle. Killed him. Had him murdered, basically. Now, it's interesting because you follow this down. Look at verse 12. read the rest on your own. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds. And the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. And he had uh, bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the lamb who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold the lamb because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, then Nathan said to David, look at what he says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave the house of Israel and Judah. And that had been too little, for I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have then taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And it goes on. That's David. What happens ultimately? David repents. Why? Why? Because he had somebody like Nathan in his life. He had somebody that was able to step into the center stage and say, hey, hey, hold on, wait a minute. (laughs) Let Let me tell you a little story here, David. Something's wrong. Something's wrong here. Something stinks. And I'm going to point out to you what it is. He didn't hold back. But if David would have been isolated... You wouldn't have had that accountability. You say, "Well, the accountability didn't help them with it." Well, you know what? Who's your Nathan? Who's your Nathan? Who's holding you to the your feet to the fire? Who's making sure you're doing things right in your daily life? See, things like that can be addressed. Things like that over a period of time, where intimacy can grow in a group, we we can address those things. Versus here on Sunday morning. We couldn't address those things here Sunday morning. We'd be here all day probably. Next person, Solomon. As a result of Nathan, we see that David actually repented before God and he received God's forgiveness. Not so with the next guy. First Kings chapter 11. You look at Solomon, and he had no Nathan to tell him, "Hey, wait a minute! <laughs> I'm going to hold you accountable in this area of your life." Eventually, he was severely disciplined by God. Look at look at First Kings chapter eleven, verse one to thirteen. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. First mistake: as many as uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, woman of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians. And Hittites, he had them all, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with these, nor are they with you. Surely you will turn your heart they will turn your hearts after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had seven hundred wives, princesses, three hundred concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after their gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Asherah, the god of the Sidonians, and all these different things. He's going after all this stuff. In verse 6 it says, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then he built temples. He built all these places of worship to their their foreign gods. It says down in verse 9, So the Lord became very angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. In spite of that, his heart was still hard. Verse 10, And had commanded him concerning these things, this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, look at what he says, because you have done this, because you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you to do, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will tear away the whole kingdom. I will... I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Two lives, two men, two totally different outcomes. Why? Because there's accountability. There's one who had relationships. There's one who had something going on, someone to come along and say, hey, wait a minute, Buster, you're doing the wrong thing here. Brothers and sisters, we need that. It's, it's, it's ironic to me that in Ecclesiastes 4.9-10, Solomon says two are better than one because they have a good return for the work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and no one helps him up. You know what? We could have people right here, sitting here this morning that have fallen, but nobody knows. Nobody's going to help them because nobody knows him. Because they're an island onto the south. Come to church, sit here, put the smile face on. Nothing changes. Week after week, you go home, then you repeat the whole thing next week. That scares me, beloved, as your pastor. That, That scares me that that could be happening. I mean, if Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived besides the Lord, needed accountability, then don't sit here this morning and say, I don't need this stuff. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And that's what we want to work at toward our small groups. We want to kind of phrase the the, the Scripture, Proverbs twenty seven seventeen that says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So one woman sharpens another. It's important that we understand that. That's the first the first means of this progressive sanctification. Is relationships. Just quickly in closing. Also God's Word. God's Word. Relationships are one means of sanctification. God's Word is another nothing changes us more effectively than the application of scripture that's why it was so exciting yesterday morning as i opened up in prayer to look out at these ladies 20-some ladies they're hungry to study god's word that just blew me away nothing changes us more effectively than the application of scripture You know, it's interesting. It's very sobering sometimes when you come up here and and you, you, you preach a message. But you know what? I perfectly understand that no matter how passionately or how creatively someone might communicate from a pulpit, that There's not a lot of fruit to be born from this. There just isn't. If I quizzed you and said, what did we preach on last week? I'd probably flunk the quiz, first of all. (laughs) But if we ran around the room, most of you would probably flunk the quiz too. Because it's not about this form of communication all the time. Because you know what? Hearing God's Word is not sufficient. It's not just hearing God's Word. It's the application of God's Word. That's when we see the fruit. And small groups are a place where we can come together and study God's Word, yes, but also apply it. It's hard to apply God's Word to a group of 50, 60 people. It applies differently to everybody. That's why usually I just get up and tell you what the text says. I'm not going to, you know, hopefully maybe give some application, but for the most part, you may be totally in another area of application that I'm even sharing about. But that's why James says don't merely listen to the Word. Don't just merely listen to it and deceive yourselves. He says do what it says in James 1. Anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks up, gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and after looking, he goes away immediately and forgets what he looks like. You'd say, that'd be crazy. How many of you, let me look around first, how many of you got up this morning, went in the bathroom, looked in the mirror, and said, oh, I'm going to church? Yeah, right, I hope not too. You know, there's a, there's a, there was an article in Newsweek and it said this, a typical man's lifetime will include a total of seven years. Man's lifetime. Seven years in the bathroom, guys. Seven years in the bathroom. Much of that time will be spent looking into the mirror as we make increasingly futile attempts at <laughs> damage control. Now ladies, that's the men. Men. Ladies, you should probably add about three years to that amount. Talk about a decade, the study said. You know, it's funny. I mean, you know, my wife this morning, I, I was here over here at church. I'd run home get changed and walked in the house. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, great. So jumped in the tower, got changed, did everything, and I'm in the car in about 15 minutes. She's in the car. We're ready to go. Good. Everything's smooth, you know. And uh, I noticed we're driving down Jetter and all of a sudden she puts the visor down, gets the mirror out, starts with... I'm like, I thought, you know, in my mind I didn't say anything because I knew better, but I'm just thinking, you know, I thought you said you were done, you know, but no, it continues, even in the car, you know, I mean, it's crazy. You look good, that's great. I mean, you know, whatever it takes. I don't know if I should have said that, but anyway... But if you just looked in the mirror and walked away, you know what? I mean, that wouldn't be good. And, and that's what we don't want to do when it comes to God's Word. We don't want to just, okay, yeah, this is what it says, and just walk away. It doesn't change. It doesn't affect us. See, in a small group, you know, when I'm up here preaching, sometimes I'll see somebody in the back row or in the, a row crying. I can't just stop and go over and say, hey, what's going on? Something just touched your heart. I'm concerned. What, tell me about it. I can't, you can't do that in this venue. You just can't. But in a small group, you know what? you come together, maybe you had a bad week. Hey, well, you know what relate that to the people in the group. So you can grow together through that. Maybe you said as John you know John said this morning, a lot of people dealing with financial deal that's a place to share those things. Maybe you're dealing with kids or whatever. Come together, you pray together. And you can see how all of a sudden you have a little community there and you begin to share with each other. And it's not just come to Sunday, get pumped up, and, and, and hopefully make it through the rest of the week. It's like, no, all of a sudden the focus becomes, you know, not just Sunday, but man, I can't wait to get to my small group, to relate to the people that are there, to get to know them better, to study God's Word together, to pray together, to hold each other accountable because we want to be glorifying in God's sight. We want to grow. And we'll be talking more about that next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we ask, Lord, as we begin this adventure together, Father, that You would uh, mold us and make us into the people of God that You desire us to be. Lord, this isn't just another program. Uh, It's something that the New Testament practiced. And as we're going to find out next week, it's something that is clearly throughout Scripture that we should be having a progressing sanctification together. We should be mutually caring for one another. We should be having real, authentic, intimate fellowship. And we should be seeing the ministry of the Holy Spirit through gifts and talents that You've given us worked out in different venues, Lord. And we pray that as we sit here this morning that we would truly come before You and ask You where do you want me to be involved? What night works for me? I want to be committed to this. More than that, I want to be committed to you, Lord. I don't want to go through another week not changing. I don't want to go through another year same old, same old. But Father, we expect you to work in a dynamic way in our body. And Lord, it's all because you've you've allowed us by Your grace, to come to You place the Holy Spirit within us. Lord, I pray that this morning that if there's anybody here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in the living God that we're talking about, in the living God that has blessed us with the grace and the mercy that allows us to have that intimate fellowship, if there's anybody here who is yet to do that, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to You, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord. I need Your help. That's the prayer that God will honor. He'll hear that prayer, and He'll change you. He'll justify you in that instant, make you righteous like His Son. Father, we thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand.